Welcome to the latest episode of the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and after a brief hiatus, well, only about half a year, we're back with more on Russia. We're now entering an important stretch in Russian politics, with parliamentary elections slated for September. Now, despite Russia's authoritarian bent a lot of the time, elections really do matter there. They're an important legitimizing tool for the government, and they also provide a sort of release valve for dissatisfied voters. Now, we're going to have a ton to say about the elections in the coming months, but today I wanted to start with a more 30,000-foot view on Russia as a whole. What is the state of Russian democracy? What's the state of electoral and internet freedom? Joining us today are Isabel Linzer and Nick Trickett. Isabel joins us from Freedom House, where she's a research analyst for technology and democracy and leads Election Watch for the Digital Age, which tracks the interplay of elections, internet platforms, and human rights around the world. Nick, an old-timer around here by this point, is a specialist on Russia's political economy. He also authored the Russia section of this year's Freedom House Nations in Transit report. Before we get going, just a quick caveat that our opinions on this episode are ours alone. That being said, let's have at it. Nick and Isabel, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thanks. So first things first, before we get to today's topic, uh, I'd like both of you to introduce yourselves. Nick, you're an old timer, so we'll start with Isabel. Uh, Tell us more about what you do, what keeps you busy. Sure. So I'm a research analyst for technology and democracy at Freedom House, and I lead Election Watch for the Digital Age, which is a new project that we have that's a bit different than some of the annual reports that you might be familiar with. And we focus on the intersection of elections, internet freedom, and human rights. So in other words, we are tracking digital election interference, um, and we're publishing data and analysis to help people kind of wrap their heads around some of that jargon, you know, internet shutdowns versus blocks, influence operations and disinformation, what all of that means for democracy and human rights. Um, And so I'm here, you know, as a non-Russia person, but we are covering Russia in this uh, this, uh, project. And I'm really delighted to talk about it because I'm all for mainstreaming digital election interference into conversations about democracy and elections more broadly. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, I think the comparativist kind of global context will be helpful in kind of placing Russia in in the broader global trends. So turning to Nick, uh, what's your latest? Yeah, so like so many other people uh, last year, I'm one of the hapless souls who migrated to Substack. So I've um, I, I run a, a daily newsletter covering um, kind of political economy developments, business news, um, some kind of commodities or international stuff, but focusing mostly on Russia, um, some Eurasia content as well, and occasionally stuff in the U.S. Uh, and, and basically, as of now, I kind of mostly do project kind of political risk work. Um, now, I would say that this is big R risk, meaning that it's not so much the kind of security stuff where you try to figure out who's going to steal your property or like who to bribe. It's more the, the kind of macro environment. What, what's the role of a state corporation on a given market? Um, or what impact does the energy transition have, let's say, on the on budgets and so on? Um, and that's kind of what I've been doing for the last five, six months. It's a great, it's a great Substack. Highly recommend folks subscribe. I'll include a link. OGs and OFCs is what it's called. Uh, combining Nick's love of uh, Russian debt markets and uh, classic hip hop. But anyway, uh, let's get to the topic at hand today. Um, so starting with a uh, very Freedom Housey theme, and I should note. The caveat, we were speaking, uh, these are our own opinions here. We're not speaking for anybody else uh, throughout this conversation. Uh, but the Nations in Transit report, which uh, as far as the Russia part's concerns, Nick uh, took the lead writing, if I have that correct. Um, mm-hmm. 
How did Russia do this year? So the kind of big story would, would be that the Russian national democratic governance declined to the lowest possible score um, for the first time ever, I believe, if I'm that correctly. Um, of course, Russia didn't have very far to fall. So in that sense, it did well because its relative decline was you know, relatively minimal. The, the big thing that's, that uh, I think we have to revise a little bit now because the 2020 um, you know, numbers would be different um, given what's happened since the end of 2020 was that we had uh, civil society improving its score because of the resiliency of civil society um, to be able to organize and, and kind of pressure the regime despite the various measures they've used to suppress dissent, to harass you know, organizers with uh, Navalny and other people like him. The problem, of course, now being that the level of repression is so much greater that it's unclear what level of resilience really is there um, going forward into the, the uh, Duma elections later this year. Um, but 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 for last year, we we, we noted basically that that, it, that kind of was, was an improved score because they were more resilient than expected. That sounds, I mean, good that they're more resilient than respected, but it sounds like things were pessimistic to begin with and got more pessimistic, kind of continuing with the, like the adage about uh, uh, Russian history, and then it got worse. Um, Isabel, though, if you could speak to how that trend fits into the broader overall kind of global performance, um, as far as what I've read, uh, 2020 was not a fantastic year for democratic governance, or at least as far as uh, retrenching democracy. Um, what was the what was the broader theme? So, yeah, that's exactly right. In Nations in Transit, Belarus was the other country where the national democratic governance score bottomed out. Um, but kind of looking a little more broadly still, Russia out of the 29 countries in nations in transit is ranked seventh, seventh from the bottom, which is certainly not great. And that is consistent with Freedom House's other annual reports. So in Freedom on the Net, Russia is rated as not free. It declined a point last year because of its push towards sovereignizing the internet through this sovereign runet law. Um, and in Freedom in the World, which looks at political rights and civil liberties, uh, Russia is also rated as not free. Not free. Um, but the score there, kind of like Nick was saying, has kind of bottomed out in a lot of areas. So we haven't seen much score movement. Uh, I think we're all waiting to see if the upcoming elections change that. Um, but, you know, in, in Freedom in the World, Russia sits next to... Vietnam, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Rwanda, Egypt, you know, these really very authoritarian countries. Uh, so that's not a, a good place to be in heading into an election season. Uh, certainly not. And I think, though, it's important, and again, why I'm excited to have a comparativist here with uh, global context, is important to note that while Russia, of course, has its unique spin on authoritarianism, it is uh, a regular country. It's not, as, as Nick said, not like a mysterious black box unicorn. Um, it does fit into the global trends. Nick, if I could ask you, just as a methodology enthusiast, uh, as far as the calculating, like how democratic or not democratic a nation is, what are some of the metrics you're looking at, especially as we're looking towards Russia's upcoming parliamentary elections? Yeah, so it's kind of hard to say because, um, for example, when you write these reports, you're, you're also somewhat locked in by path dependency off prior scores, because obviously I can't come in like, you know, with a blank slate and just decide what I feel that the score should be. Um, but I would say that the, the, the most of the important metrics tend to be qualitative um, for the simple reason that it's really, really easy to kind of teach the test, if you will, if you're trying to create a measure for, um, you know, for democratic governance in a country, especially a country like Russia. And we see how ineffective that is when, when you look at stuff like World Bank doing business ratings, um, which will show Russia climbing the rankings, but we all know that's absurd. And so I, I would say it's, it's, it's kind of a, a bit of alchemy, but it's, you're basically 
kind of conglomerating all the qualitative evidence you have as to what the actual quality of institutions are, um, what the level of dissent that is tolerated looks like, uh, the flexibility of the system, frankly, in, in responding to, to kind of crises. And that kind of often reveals um, how democratic its character really is. Um, in, in the Russian case, that usually means man, you know, manual controls. It's called that essentially this, like someone in the state is tasked with you know, fixing a problem. And it's obviously not by democratic means generally. I would also say, you know, going back to what we mentioned earlier, the kind of resiliency of non-state or kind of uh, like civil society or non-state actors to organize and be able to address local problems. You know, local governance is kind of hard to measure insofar as if you're not actually doing like on-site work in country, you're really stuck using news stories. And those are often don't necessarily you know, tell the whole story, but you can usually infer basically what's, you know, what, what, what the level of quality of governance is. Um, and so I, I would say that methodologically speaking, it's primarily uh, a lot of kind of country knowledge, qualitative understanding of what you're what you're looking at, and just trying to figure out how to parse what the trends are. Because obviously, the starting point for any any given um, rating in, in a year has to kind of refer to the previous years leading up to it. Now, turning to Isabel and our next topic here, um, I'm going to call this controlling the uncontrollable with a big question mark. Um, and I want to talk about some of the dynamics that we're seeing in Russia as we head towards these parliamentary elections. Uh, you're going to hear us in this episode, and I'm sure in many episodes to come before September, talking about the parliamentary elections. They're a big deal. Uh, but I want to talk about uh, particularly Internet freedom in Russia. And then Nick will turn to you after that to talk about. So what is Russia? What are Putin and co specifically? What are they trying to control? And do we think, and this will turn to both of you, do we think that's possible? So we'll start with Isabel. What's the, the broad trend? Um, what's the broad trend here with Internet freedom? So I'm really glad we're talking about this because there's a lot of big movement, I think, uh, that we've seen recently in Russia on this front. Um, you know, often when I'm scrolling through the news or Twitter, when we're talking about elections and Internet freedom, usually what comes up is Internet shutdowns. Um, that's kind of the big newsy thing. And that's actually a really blunt, unsophisticated tool. And so talking really deeply about this with Russia, I think, is is important. You know, we've seen Internet shutdowns in Russia before around elections and protests, but they're usually targeted and local and not these wide scale national blackouts. Um, so what really we're seeing in Russia is they have made use of a huge range of tactics, blocking websites, removing posts from social media, using state aligned media and paid commentators to influence the narratives that are out there arresting people for speaking out online. And, you know, I, I could go on and on. Um, but what you see is that the government comes at the online environment from every angle. So in many ways, it's nimble and kind of has its pick of the litter when it comes to what tools to implement um, instead of relying on, on more blunt tools. Um, you know, I think in terms of the, the really big things to watch for. I want to point towards the, the news earlier this month that YouTube was deleting links to Navalny's smart, smart voting site. You know, of course, that can impact organizing around the election, but it's also tied into some bigger trends that I want to zero in on. Uh, you know, I just said that removing content is certainly a piece of how Russia controls the online environment. But Russia has also been going head to head with social media and tech giants recently. In the past couple of years, even uh, Russia's telecoms regulator has fined Google a couple times for refusing to connect to the regulator's registry uh, of banned websites in order to filter search results. And then more recently, Russia sued Twitter, Google, 
Facebook, TikTok, Telegram for allegedly not deleting certain posts related to the pro Navalny protests this winter. Um, so this is a really big deal and something to watch going into this election and beyond because all of this tension with social media companies is a clear signal that the Russian government is still continuing this campaign it has to establish a sovereign internet, right? So a Russia-specific internet. And the big question here is how will tech companies respond to pressure? You know, will they capitulate ahead of the election and comply with what is likely to be increasing demands from the Russian government to help control the online environment? And, you know, so far we've seen fines, um, but if looming over that, the threat is that if these companies don't comply, they would be blocked or cut off, um, which is certainly a big incentive for them to comply with the Russian government. Uh, and we did actually just already see a preview of that when um, the regulator threatened to block Twitter and then throttled access to Twitter for failing to remove banned content. So a question so, about that, if I could yeah, yeah. jump in. Um, do you see, as far as this trend has continued, and I remember when uh, it must have been 2015, starting to observe, oh, they're going to try to create a sovereign internet. So it's been a topic for a while. Do you see uh, in the, the last several years, A, more willingness from the authorities to play tough with international tech companies, but also have you seen greater capacity by the internet regulator, Raskarnadzor, they have a kind of amusing online presence. Uh, you know, throttling the internet's not amusing, but their Twitter accounts sometimes can be. Um, but do you see them gaining uh, ability slash capacity? And by that, I mean, um, they very famously kind of tried to take on Telegram and just overtly lost. They couldn't do it. Um, with throttling Twitter, I believe it was they tried to like, and I am not a, a tech whiz here, but like they blocked the subdomain t.co, like the Twitter subdomain, um, which also meant they took down like Microsoft website in Russia because it, you know, Microsoft t.com. Um, so they wound up taking off um, or throttling a, a vast swath of the internet, internet, which doesn't look, uh, how do I say this? correctly, like particularly savvy as far as censorship. So regarding so turning back to the actual question, are they getting more willing and are they getting better? Well, I'm glad you pointed out Telegram. That was really a clumsy failure. Uh, and, and same with the Twitter block inadvertently blocking other websites. Um, but it does demonstrate willingness. And I do think there are more points of leverage now. Um, you know, I think two in particular, one is the the sovereign brunette law that I mentioned earlier, um, which is aiming basically to wall off the Russian segment of the internet. And it does this by giving the regulator more control over the country's actual physical internet infrastructure. I think often we forget, you know, the internet has physical infrastructure and somebody has to control that. So that gives um, them another point of leverage. And, you know, that was set back by the pandemic, the kind of timeline for implementing that, but it's still a relevant threat that's that's hanging over the heads, I think, of these of these tech companies. And the other piece is this new uh, authority that the Central Election Commission can um, request the blocking of 
um, and excuse me, removal of content for illegal campaigning. And that request goes directly to the regulator. So circumventing judicial processes, and it could make it a lot easier and faster to remove content ahead of the election. Um, So I do think that there is definitely momentum despite the the clumsiness that we've seen. Would you believe that the head of the election commission was once a highly respected human rights defender with like a really sterling reputation for doing good work? Kind of shows the uh, political decisions that uh, people people make uh, within the Russian system. Um, Turning to Nick though, so we're talking about these uh, efforts to establish a sovereign internet, whether or not they'll succeed. I mean, Russians as a hauler a fairly tech-savvy bunch, but you can only go so far to actually get around to the hardware limitations of uh, of the internet being regulated. I guess the question is, given the extent to which they're going to regulate information, control the information space, what are the authorities worried about? Uh, I mean, if I had to simplify it, they're they're worried about objective truth existing. Um, and obviously, I mean, I mean I'm, it sounds like a bit of a hyperbole, but um, I think a great example of that or way to think about it is what's happening in the economy and the way it's related to the efforts to kind of manage the elections. If you want a kind of simple formula, the the worse the economy gets, the more they have to rely on repressive measures basically to make sure that they get the outcomes they want. For the simple reason that if things are not going well economically, you cannot rely as, as readily on the apathy of the people who are suffering, right? And that's kind of, that was kind of an implicit part of the social contract the regimes relied on for most of the last decade. Um, and, and it's something that kind of started falling apart in the, the later part of last year because of the massive uh, price inflation seen for basic goods, usually mostly foods, but um, also in housing. And th- and that's actually a global story because that's been happening in lots and lots of countries for the simple reason that during COVID-19, you know, we, we, weren't, we weren't consuming services, but we all still had to eat. So, so and lots of commodities for various reasons got more expensive. Um, and so it's reached the point where because of how limited the economic measures have been to actually address the problem or else how ineffective they've been, they've mostly relied on price control measures that just don't work. Uh, they're now actually trying, they've, they've essentially passed legislation to punish people for price speculation, which is like a Soviet era holdover in, in which you would, you essentially blame individual businessmen or, or in, in, in this, this last week, you know, Mishustin blamed greed amongst businessmen for price increases, um, you know, for, for the failings of the system or else for, for factors they can't control. And, this, and that's increasingly happening. So I would say the basic, the basic problem they have is that while they dominated legacy media, so TV stations and the kind of print outlets, they obviously lagged on the internet which has become a, an increasingly important source of information in, in the last 10 years. And so the last kind of four years, if you will, of slow and steady efforts to censor the space correspond to their need to be able to mi- kind of control and manipulate opinion if they're not able to produce support amongst the population using other means, in this case, economic growth or, or just stability of, you know, of incomes. And that's also why you're, you're seeing a kind of scramble uh, amongst the systemic parties, most of the Communist Party, but, um, but, but systemic parties, to essentially isolate the members of the systemic opposition who are saying stuff about what the regime's doing wrong that are out of bounds. So there's kind of like a, a, an expanding attempt to just cut off the discourse and control it as much as possible and, and reduce it to as small, a small as a, a kind of center, center of, um, I, I guess I, I would say like, like center of information as possible in Moscow or else in, in the regional governments. And so I, I think that the, the basic answer to your question is they, they, they simply because they cannot fix things, they have to make people think they're being fixed. Gotcha. Isabel, you had a point. Yeah, on that point about this, about controlling discourse, which I very much agree with, um, one of the 
things that the Russian government benefits from in terms of this nimbleness and, and many different tools that I mentioned uh, is that it can avoid getting its hands as dirty as obviously as you might see in another country. Um, you know, we've all seen the news in Myanmar that after after the election and then after the coup, there are internet shutdowns every night. And that's very obvious, creates a lot of backlash, right? But the Russian government really benefits from kind of doing all of these legally and subtly and allowing the regulations to create a slower kind of chokehold on the information space. I think what happened to Medusa is a great example of that, where updating a law that then um, really restricts the ability of one of the, you know, a really important independent news site to operate properly and will probably drive away some of the readers or advertisers or others that, that might engage with Medusa. I think that's a great example of how the Russian government can kind of use these subtle tools to just set up an environment that um, kind of eats itself from the inside so that, you know, the, the, they don't have to go in and necessarily shut down Medusa themselves. That's being that's being executed by the environment that they're operating in. Yeah, and, and I think to build on that, the more that they can they can they can separate people from really being able to see the full picture of what's happening nationally, the easier it is for them to rely on the kind of mobilizational resources they have to to make sure that they ensure the vote counts that they need. So obviously, you use, you have administrative resources like denying someone access to the ballot in, in terms of uh, being a candidate, right, or or trying to control the party lists in, in, at the regional level. Um, the other side of that, though, is using you know state companies and and or companies that are close to the state to essentially try to force their employees to vote. And that's one of the most important ways of actually generating the, the vote totals you need in the in the regions um, in Russia because of how how big those companies are, many of them. And so I would say that like the the more that they can they can manufacture apathy through 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 people's kind of divorce from what's happening, the easier it is to rely on the mobilizational tools that they have available. Manufactured apathy, I think, is a great a great term for the dynamic that it might be going on. I just wonder with smart voting, and we'll go back to internet freedom in a second, because I actually have a, a question about this for Isabel. But um, given smart voting, which centers on basically picking a, a candidate that is not United Russia and voting for that candidate, regardless of which party, it may not lead to an anti-systemic result, but it will be embarrassing for United Russia. Do you not see there's maybe a problem with uh, Russia's authorities in the sense that um, when it comes time to vote, they can do all they want to stop smart voting. But the United Russia candidates are going to have United Russia next to their name. And people can still be apathetic and disaffected and not politically engaged and just not vote for United Russia. I guess the, the question is, to what extent can they actually uh, actually limit and you know, put the squeeze on smart voting? So uh, the short answer is I don't really know how they can stop it from happening, though obviously it entails a level of organization that's disrupted by what's happening um, with, with, with their attempts to go after Navalny's team and basically everybody who's kind of similarly minded. Um, but I would say that that, that that kind of fits in with the point I raised earlier that they're trying to, uh, to essentially like silence the, the voices from the systemic opposition that would actually pose a real threat. So in a sense, if they can make it seem like, you know, all, all the systemic opposition are the same as United Russia, it, it kind of defangs the, the actual effect of smart voting. And further, they're obviously trying to stretch the resources they have in terms of the um, access to vote. So that, that's why they're trying to get people in Donbass with Russian passports to vote for a UR candidate that will then join the Duma um, as, a, as a way to just sneak in another seat. Right. It's also it also kind of gets a bit complicated when you talk about uh, the single mandate 
uh, seats that where you're not really running on a party list. It's more about the individual candidate. So you have more, uh, I would say, leeway there if the CEO or candidates perform well, because United Russia is relatively good at, at least at the public facing kind of PR side of, of trying to be a party of local issues when it's important to be. Um, I, I think that the bigger problem that you're pointing to, though, is that, you know, smart voting can still have a big systemic impact because um, the result is that parties that are otherwise systemic opposition can at a moment's notice suddenly become much more salient or powerful politically, at least in the short term, if they if they you know, were to receive a, a massive inf inflood of, um, of, of voting. So it, it's, it's part of this kind of tenuous balance where they can control the, the, the players that are within the system, but at the same time, those players can still gain political capital by getting more votes. Yeah, and I think the other issue that may be facing the Kremlin is uh, the more subtle tools they're using, the more kind of nuance and, you know, less um, strong arm, more, you know, you know, kind of peripheral, we're going to like uh, put a finger on the scale lightly. I think the more administrative resources and resources in general it takes to actually manage all those smaller moving parts versus just, you know, smashing a fist down. But for more regional context, um, there's talk that, you know, Russia is sovereign internet. Russia wants to be like China. Russia is becoming China. Like, I think Russia is becoming Russia. So I guess the question is, how does, as far as internet freedom is concerned, how does Russia fit into the, um, to the global picture? You know, if there's a spectrum of internet freedom, you know, how do we, how do we situate Russia? Where do we situate it? So Russia has uh, a lot of restrictions on the internet freedom to kind of put it simply. Um, you know, I, I, I think it is meaningfully different from China. You brought that up as a comparison and people definitely do talk about that comparison with the sovereign internet question, but folks in Russia, you know, younger people especially do understand a lot more what freedom looks and feels like and are going to, are more willing to protest. Um, you know, we certainly saw that this winter and we've seen it in the past. And so those who do oppose the regime have already used the internet for mobilization. And the exceedingly tight grip that China has on online information and through the Great Firewall is probably not politically viable in Russia in the same way. I'd be really interested to hear Nick's take on that. Um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of ways that it can get a little bit closer to that. You know, I, I keep talking about this sovereign internet thing, but it's very real. And I think Russia's in a good point of leverage. We, have seen this kind of situation happen in other countries and social media companies have capitulated. Um, we, we've seen it recent actually in Vietnam in 2020, the government throttled access to Facebook because the company refused to remove content and then Facebook eventually did agree to the censorship demand. So I think there are, you know, there are those places where Russia can still exert more control, but I don't see us getting to a level where um, the internet just isn't even a viable option for these kinds of conversations. Yeah, so I guess to, to, to respond to the, the kind of comparison with China, I think it's definitely the case that um, it's hard to say going forward because we're kind of in new territory. Um, I think that like Mark Aliotti's um, own kind of a, a description of it was basically that the, the, era, the era of postmodern authoritarianism in Russia has, is kind of over and we're entering a period of just full on full frontal authoritarianism, if you will, right? They're not, not trying to disguise what they're doing anymore. So in, in that sense, I think it's hard to say um, what, what, let's say, four or five years from now look like, um, because that's a different trajectory in terms of the information space and their, their, even their approach to the internet, despite these kind of slow-moving attempts to restrict access to it. Um, 
I would say that I don't think it's politically viable to, to take the same approach for the simple reason that, you know, Russians don't have this, uh, this like suffering gene that allows them just to absorb declining living standards indefinitely without some kind of reaction. Um, you know, the, the very fact that the, like the, the payments from the social spending that was announced by Putin back in on the 21st of April is our time to go out by mid August is literally designed to make sure they get the votes come, you know, mid September. Um, and, and so they're very, they're very cognizant, I think, of, of the interplay between how bad things have gotten economically for people and, and their quality of life uh, and, and the extent to which they, they, can, they can kind of restrict things. Now, um, obviously, I think that there is a lot of scope for them to restrict the Internet, right? So I'm, I'm not saying that that's not going to happen. But to give you a kind of flavor of, of how bizarre or where the debate kind of gets in Moscow, uh, you've already had members of the, or at least one member of the Duma, from I believe the um, Liberal Democrats, uh, so-called, um, basically suggesting that they reintroduce exit visas so that people would have to apply for a visa to leave the country. Now, their logic behind this was, oh, it'll help you know, develop domestic tourism, but the reality is obviously it restricts movement, and, and that's a very, very blatant measure that the government expressly shot down once it was proposed. So there are still kind of undefined limits to what, what they'll countenance, but I would say that there's definitely a, a greater willingness now to restrict the information space for the simple reason that I think they have to. Um, the scary part of that is that, you know, the harder they make it to actually figure out what's happening in the country, uh, just by reading the news, for example, which is a problem I'm, I'm struggling with at the moment. And it's something to worry about now that the Times has been named a, um, a foreign agent as well. Um, you know, the, the harder it will also be for them to know what's going on in the country. And so they're actually also diminishing their own ability to, to, to monitor what's happening to the point where now the government kind of created a coordination center during COVID. What it really is, is essentially a platform for the Prime Minister, uh, Mikhail Mishustin, to coordinate activities between different agencies for the, the quote-unquote crisis response. I say quote-unquote because they did nothing uh, in, in practical terms in many cases. But, but really what, what it's becoming is a kind of agglomeration center for data in theory that allows them to head off regional dissent or local dissent in various contexts to try to make sure that it doesn't become a problem for Moscow. The more that they do to stop people from knowing what's actually happening um, you know, with, without it being filtered through some kind of state either owned or pressured source, the harder it is to know what, what the quality of the actual data is they're working with. Uh, and so I, I think it's kind of a, 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 a fundamental problem that I think is different in China um, because China is governed much more expressly at the regional level than Russia is, where the regions often are pretty much at the mercy of the center for resources in many cases. Uh, you know, they've created a system in which this steady curtailment of the information space actually poses governance risks in the long run. It's one of my favorite lines that uh, measures that become targets stop being measures. And I think there's some politics involved in incentives to not have problems. And I think, yeah, they're, uh, you know, blinding the population can you know, also lead to authorities blending themselves. Um, we'll take a couple more minutes and, you know, per tradition on the podcast, discussing is the last question, uh, a topic that really should be an entire book. Um, so the question is, given all that's going on, on one hand, do you see these pretty, not pretty, just overtly authoritarian efforts to uh, to cut back speech on the internet, to curtail uh, the ability of citizens to organize themselves. And yet, on the other hand, you see authorities like really sweating over election results and thinking about, okay, how do we get the right election results? So the hot take, hot topic question of the day is, is Russia still a democracy? And what does that even mean? So any thoughts on the matter? Uh, so short answer, no. Um, I mean, it hasn't really been one functionally since probably, I'd say, about 2013 um, in terms of the changes that happened after the uh, Bolotnaya protests. But 
but but more so than ever, I would say it's 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 gone from. I mean, it's it's highly managed, and but it's reached the point. It's reached a kind of crisis point because they can't really generate the same turnout that they used to be able to generate. Right? They don't have a big event to get people out to vote. They don't have excitement. They don't have rising living standards. So the the problem is that this. I, w- I don't think the regime is really worried about legitimacy in the way it was, let's say, you know, in the late 2000s or, you know, or even early 2010s. But if people don't actually vote and, and, and it's obvious that like a minority of the population took part, then obviously there's not really any legitimacy to the process whatsoever. And so it, it invalidates the entire purpose of having them to begin with. Um, it also I think the other problem they have is that the the electoral process has theoretically kind of become a, a way to recruit people into the political system and to kind of navigate and manage um, you know, the, the cadre politics at the local and regional level going into the center, um, because obviously individuals who are adept at navigating the, the agencies and ministries at the regional level can, can find themselves in Moscow. You know, people who might not necessarily be like public you know, household names for, for Russia's experts even still might actually be able to exert some kind of sway um, in their hometown or region by, by playing that game. But that becomes harder and harder if the, if the elections no longer serve any meaningful purpose to that end, right? Because like, you know, one of, the, one of the ideas originally was you know, around 2018, um, after the after Putin was, was reelected, was was to try to make sure that the primary process, for example, was used to weed out weak candidates from United Russia. They wanted to present the public the idea that they were trying to serve them better, in part because you know, for its many problems and inefficiencies and, and weaknesses, that is a a point of, of public interface with politicians that does take place on a relatively regular basis, even if the the forums are are stage managed. Um, so I think that what's interesting now is that. They, they more than ever have to find ways to generate a level of enthusiasm that at least offers legitimacy to the idea that that elites have some sort of relationship with the public. Uh, whether or not I, whether or not we can call that legitimacy in terms of democracy, I think is a different a different problem. Um, at, at a time when they they can no longer really provide material um, material benefits to the public in many cases, and and so that that's why I think this is such a such an intensely important election cycle for them. Um, it's because th- things have never been this bad really since, you know, wait, I mean, I mean, the in- income levels now in the country are back to where they were during the global financial crisis. I'm also going to have to go with no here and, you know, shifting from my Internet freedom to my elections hat. Uh, these elections are not intended to be democratic. And it's such an important reminder that one, elections themselves are not inherently democratic. And two, they don't have to be democratic to matter, uh, you know. These elections being anti-democratic doesn't mean that legitimacy is irrelevant. You know, we see authoritarians around the world hold elections knowing that abiding by that democratic norm by letter and not in spirit still gives an important kind of veneer of legitimacy, both domestically and abroad. Um, it, you know, it can just spark less backlash simply enough. It makes it a little bit easier. And and. Even in those contexts, elections can still be a good diversion for people domestically and also offer at least some semblance of an outlet for grievance. Um, And, you know, just I think what really makes that clear in the Russia case that legitimacy still is an important piece is that we have seen what we might call selective repression, where there have been these targeted efforts to against Navalny's team and his supporters, uh, and even sometimes the systemic opposition, uh, you know, Putin can't go full on Belarus style repression because he does need some support because it's an electoral autocracy. So instead, these kind of selective methods, again, 
very much paralleling how the Russian government treats internet freedom and using these subtle methods of control instead of blunt internet shutdowns. It's very much the same thing. And I think all of that does come back to the importance of legitimacy, even in an undemocratic electoral situation. Very well put. Uh, We'll continue to cover the run-up to the parliamentary elections throughout the next several episodes. Um, I want to thank both Isabel and Nick for coming by today. Uh, This was a great conversation. And uh, we'll continue to bring you more. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Nick and Isabel for joining. And thanks to you, listener. As I mentioned, we have more to come, so stay tuned. Be sure to follow BMB Russia and Ukraine at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB Russia and Ukraine is a project of FPRI, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and many others, be sure to visit fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.